Welcome to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullick. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fullick. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to risk management, business continuity, COVID, psychology, well-being, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that I know many of you out there pay attention to right now, because we're all paying attention to it right now. And you all know that I love to read and read a lot. And today, I'd like to welcome to the show the author of The Failure of Risk Management, Why It's Broken and How to Fix It. I'd like to welcome Douglas W. Hubbard. Douglas, uh, Doug, actually, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Alex. Um, I now I know we tried to uh, hook up before to have you come on the show, but calendars, we just couldn't uh, coordinate schedules. So I'm really glad to have you here. Um, let me tell you, the, the title of the book, that's going to grab people's attention, The Failure of Risk Management. And I know a few risk managers who are going to be listening really intently to this show today. <laughs> Great. Well, I hope so. Actually, that's that was part of the plan with the title. <laughs> now, uh, I know we've uh, gone back and forth a few times and you know, I've read the book. Can you take a minute or two and tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got into what you do? Yeah, sure. I've always been in some form of quantitative management consulting for 35 years now. Uh, so back in the 80s, I joined what was then the big eight uh, in accounting and consulting firms. I was in management consulting services with Coopers and Libran. Now they're PricewaterhouseCoopers. They were, they, those merged. Uh, so there were eight at the time. It was called the big eight. Now there's fewer. Uh, but uh, I was always involved in some form of quantitatively analyzing big uncertain decisions. The biggest difference between now and then, I think, was a lot of our analysis was Fortran and Lotus 1, 2, 3 which, you know, those, we don't use those anymore. Uh, but the basic ideas, the operations research, management science, game theory stuff, that was all the same. Uh, and uh, my, the partner who ran the, the management consulting services office there, uh, he came from Rand Corporation and he saw everything as ultimately a quantitative problem. And I, and I looked at it that way too. Well, about 20, Four years ago, we started our own business, started doing this. I'd written my first book, How to Measure Anything, in 2007, actually. And that book, the first edition of it that you just held up, came out in 2009. And a lot of this came from the fact that I was skeptical about a lot of the methods I was seeing businesses and governments use. So I would see them use methods that were unlike what I learned in more quantitative settings, operations, research, management, science, statistical methods, and so forth. And I was wondering, why are those methods so popular? 
because um, there's plenty of people using the methods that I criticize. So why are they so popular? And I started doing more research on the decision psychology behind those things and the empirical research on what actually measurably outperforms or underperforms, uh, even our baseline intuition. And that's where a lot of this kind of came from. Oh, well, welcome to the show. And I know it came out a while ago, but congratulations on the book. There's a lot of great information in here. Um, and I happen to be one of those people who um, was taught some of those old ways and uh, using it and reading your book. Um, I thought, like, oh, that's interesting. So, um, you know, congratulations on that and welcome to the show. Oh, sure. Well, so, in fact, we, we kept writing books, by the way. I wrote two more after those two. And the last one, the fourth one, I just finished the second edition of, and that's How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk. So it's really an extrapolation of that book, the one you're holding up the second edition of, to cybersecurity. So I, I thought I'd mention that. Oh, well, congratulations on all of those books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, early in the book, you have a great quote. A weak risk management approach is effectively the biggest risk in the organization. What did you mean by that? Well, when I look at the actual methods that people are using and the research behind whether or not they improve decisions or work in any way at all, it's pretty disconcerting. It appears that the most common risk assessment methods, so the risk management has to be based on some risk assessment at some point. So they're assessing risk. I'm not equating, I'm not uh, saying that risk assessment is synonymous with risk management. Clearly part of risk management is assessing the risk. So you know what to manage, you know what to prioritize and so forth. Well, uh, some of the methods that are so popular uh, seem to actually add error to decision-making. So there's been a lot of research on this. So it's been on going on for decades now. And I felt like a lot of the research that was pointing out how bad some of the methods were, were was still obscure that people didn't know about the research. So I just started digging this research up, citing it in presentations and workshops I made. I decided to put together a book and that's what that became. But uh, think about it. If, if the risk assessment method itself is broken or even adds error, that affects everything else you do in risk management. Somebody might say, well, people are my biggest risk, whatever that means. Uh, they might say cybersecurity is my biggest risk or, you know, some other category of risk is my biggest risk. But all of those are informed by the risk assessment method, ultimately. So that's the apex risk, the meta risk. Uh, it's the risk of the risk assessment method itself. When we adopt any methodology at all, decision-making methods, et cetera, we're basically assuming that I'm going to make better decisions and estimates with that method than I would have without it. My unaided intuition is kind of a baseline, and I have to beat that model, the unaided intuition model. I have to beat that to justify any effort I put into additional analysis. What you don't want to do is adopt methods that actually add error to my unaided intuition. Uh, you've heard of garbage in, garbage out kind mm -hmm. of problems, yeah. right? What you don't want is, and that's true for any model, no matter what it is. Um, certainly our intuition has that problem. But what you don't want to use is a method that adds more garbage of its own, right? Mm -hmm. Garbage garbage squared, right? So you don't, <laughs> you don't need that. Um, there are some methods that measurably outperform uh, subjective estimates alone. And so we should use those. In fact, 
uh, not all subjective estimation methods are equal. Some subjective estimation methods measurably outperform others. So even subjective methods using subject matter experts by itself isn't necessarily an uninformative or bad thing. We use that quite a lot. You just have to use it a certain way. In business continuity, we use a risk assessment and we basically have the probability times impact equals your risk. Mm -hmm. Is that the kind of thing that we're doing wrong? Well, in principle, that's not bad if probability impact are actual quantities. And I don't mean pseudo quantities like a scale of one to five or something like that. Yeah. Uh, probability is a well-defined mathematical term. And do you mean, for example, if we say that something's unlikely, uh, do you mean there's less than a 10% chance per year that this event would occur? Is that what we mean? So what is the chance of that event? Don't just say less than 10%. Is it 1% or is it 5%? And by the way, there are ways to benchmark some of those things. So you don't have to feel like, well, I don't use quantitative methods because I lack data. Um, the lack of data is not alleviated by qualitative scores. You still lack the data. You just feel better about it. That's the only difference. You, just feeling better about lacking data. So um, saying that a probability is likely or unlikely or high, medium, low, uh, Instead of that, and all the, there's been a lot of research on this, um, that adds error to our unaided intuition. What we should do instead is learn how to subjectively assess probabilities. It's a skill you can learn. We can actually measure somebody's skill at subjectively assessing probabilities through a series of exercises, and we can measurably improve it during about a half day of training. After half after a half day of training, about 85% of subject matter experts are statistically indistinguishable from a bookie at putting odds on things. So why not just do that? Why not just get measurably better at subjectively assessing probabilities and then use actual probabilities? Because once you speak that language, there's a lot of neat stuff we can do. Even if you keep it really simple, already you're avoiding some of the error that's added by those qualitative scales. Now I can get into quite a lot of the research about the error that's added by those qualitative scales. Among other things, there's this uh, illusion of agreement or illusion of communication that when somebody says this is a two on a scale of one to five, or that's a moderate, you and I might believe we've agreed. And when you debrief us in detail, you find out we meant completely different things. There's been a bunch of research on that. Even when people carefully define each of the bins, like, Perhaps uh, your risk matrix that you've been using, maybe the likelihood scale, a one means less than this percent chance per year. Often they leave out the time. You can't, by the way, you can't do that, but they'll just say less than 10% chance of occurring, whatever that means. 10% chance of occurring, what, once in a century or once in a month? I, don't, I have no idea what it means. But uh, whatever a one means, maybe you carefully define it. Maybe a two is everything between 10 and 25% and a three is 25 to 60% or something like that. Does that sound familiar? And maybe the impact is defined the same way. One is less than a million, two is 1 million to 5 million or something like that in terms of dollars. Um, well, there's this phenomenon called partition dependence. And this one researcher, Craig Fox, spent a lot of time looking into this. We might think that how we carefully define each of the bins our how is what's actually informing people's choices. That if I define two differently, people would use two differently because I've defined it differently. That's actually not a very good assumption. 
what appears to be an overriding factor in people's choices, not the only factor, but an overriding factor in people's choices is just how many points there are in the scale. If it's a five-point scale, they distribute their answers a certain way, more independent of the definitions than you might want to think. All right. So you might have carefully defined each of the bins, but the fact is they're going to distribute their answers on a five-point scale uh, to their five-point scale distribution habit, whatever that is, right? Likewise, on a seven-point or 10-point scale. So we have all these weird behaviors when we're forced to make choices about continuous values on discrete scales. So there's a lot of research about that. And none of that research is taken into account when people uh, define these uh, risk matrices. Uh, One of the most extensive papers in this whole field was by a series of authors by uh, Bickle, Thomas, and Bratfold, The Risk of Using Risk Matrices. It was a very comprehensive literature review of all of the existing literature to date and some original empirical research. And they concluded that risk matrices should not be used for decisions of any consequence. That was their ultimate conclusion that was, I'm quoting that, should not be used for decisions of any consequence. Uh, Another researcher, Tony Cox, said they can be worse than useless. What he (laughs) meant was they're not just a waste of time. He means they actually added error to your unaided intuition. So not only were they a waste of time, but they actually made your estimates worse. It It wouldn't be so bad if they were just a waste of time, but at least your decisions weren't worse than they were before. That's what I would call merely useless, but the worse than useless are what Tony Cox is declaring most risk matrices to be. And there's really no way to fix it. A lot of people say, well, if you use risk matrices correctly or a correctly designed one, you don't need them at all. Um, A simple quantitative method based on direct estimation, even subjective estimation of probabilities and impacts, ranges of impacts, just do that math. Forget the whole matrix and coming up with bins. You don't need it. Um, Think about physics and engineering. People don't have to come up with bins for things like temperature and joules and electrical current. It's a continuous value. So we, and all of the math about risk analysis is based on these continuous values. You don't have to, we didn't have to make up something new because we think we lack data. Therefore, I don't have the data to put probabilities on things. Again, you're not alleviating any of those problems by coming up with ambiguous scales. Two two questions come to mind. The first is, do we let our own personal uh, experiences into some of this risk determination, you know, and using matrices? Because you and I will, will live in different places. We will have different experiences. So if we do a risk assessment on whatever it may be, do our personal uh, perspectives influence some of these risk matrices, which is why they sometimes become... Well, that, that would be true for even quantitative methods that depend on subjective inputs. Of course, people will have different subjective assessments of uncertainties if they have different uncertainty. If one person has more information than the other, then of course it would be rational for one person to put a wider range on some impact than another person because another person has more information than the other. That's completely rational. The question we should ask is, under a state of uncertainty and subjective estimates, which methods using subjective estimates measurably outperform others? And there are methods that are, even though they're subjective, are still measurably better than alternatives. So that's what we should do. Uh, We should just 
skip the whole scales thing. Just learn how to directly assess the quantities that any actuary, statistician, or mathematician, or operations research analyst would use, um, even if it's subjective. That kind of answers my next question is, should we throw away the matrices then <laughs> that we've oh, yeah. all got? Because I yeah. know in coming from business continuity management, believe me, all the accounting houses, all everybody I've ever run into, you have to have a risk assessment, and it's all based on the severity impact or probability or whichever terms they want to use matrix matrix. And that's what you build your programs on from there. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and that's the problem because it's all every empirical study that's been done either showed it adds no value at all or makes things worse. There has not been a single reproducible empirical study that says that people are actually experiencing fewer risk or making better forecasts because they're using a risk matrix. Never happened. There's plenty of research to the contrary uh, that says that it's making things worse. Furthermore, and this is even more important, there's lots of research about things that do work. We know that even relatively simple uh, naive statistical models, even those informed by subjective estimates of trained individuals. But when I say trained, I mean calibrated. In other words, we've measured their ability to subjectively assess odds. Those are measurably better than our unaided intuition prior to that. So why are we even dealing with risk matrices at all? We already know about preferred alternatives. We know that the risk matrices, if anything, seem to add error. Mm -hmm. um, and we already know some alternatives that are better than our unaided intuition. So let's just do that. And by the way, none of this is pure theory that I'm talking about. It's all based on sound research, but the everything I'm talking about are things that we've implemented in dozens of organizations. Enterprise risk management in many fields, oil and gas, cybersecurity, big IT project risk, mining risk, aerospace, pharmaceuticals, uh, all of these different areas, we've applied these methods. This is all practical stuff that people use right now. And I didn't invent these methods. The, these methods have been around for quite a long time, some of it's centuries. Um, so we didn't have to invent things. Uh, the problem with the risk matrix, and you might have seen this in the, in the book, is we did kind of a patient zero analysis. I kind of wondered where they came from. And I think we found some good candidates for patient zero. It actually came from a related thing called a criticality matrix in oil and gas. And so this oil and gas company had an auditor who wanted to express their risk. And auditors, when they talk about risk, auditors tend to focus on deterministic things. Okay. So hmm. when they talk about risk, they have these very soft problem, you know, non-quantitative methods of discussing risk, you know, it's all moderate risk is more than extreme, you know, less than extreme risk, et cetera. They have these other terms for it. Um, so they deviate completely from statisticians and actuaries and operations, research, management, science, decision analysis, people, they, they went down a completely different route. Well, apparently uh, one of those uh, auditors from an oil and gas company, um, we think it was Gulf Canada, um, presented a version of a criticality matrix that left out some of the details that they were using previously. And it just had, you know, a score, a one to five scale, and then uh, uh, some nice colors. And here's where your risks are, because you had dots up here. And so people thought that that was communicating something. Well, when that was presented, a few of the major consulting firms were attending the same conference, uh, including uh, people from uh, ex, you know, 
uh, Arthur Anderson, Cons Anderson Consulting and a lot of the other big ones. And they picked that up and they made their own versions and they all started marketing it. And some of it ended up going into law, like it's actually in Dodd-Frank. No one asked whether or not it improved performance or made anything better. It was just simpler and people felt they understood it. Well, this feeling that we understand something is actually itself a, an illusion, a well-understood illusion in psychology. Okay. It, just because we feel that we understand something doesn't necessarily mean that we're making better estimates or decisions about it. Uh, so there is a kind of analysis placebo I've noticed in several different areas of research. So they didn't use that term. I just noticed in different areas of research, they were kind of talking about the same thing. The general tendency to believe that if you adopt something that seems like a structured procedure in some way, that your estimates and decisions are necessarily going to be better because it's structured. Well, astrology is structured. That doesn't mean anything. It, so there's lots of things that are structured nonsense. Okay. That doesn't add anything to it. So uh, that I've called the analysis placebo because what they measured in their research is that even when estimates were not improved or getting worse than they were before, confidence always went up after adopting a new method. Now, how is that even possible? How can my confidence improve when my measured performance is getting worse? Well, it's because we don't get immediate feedback on our measured performance in risk management. If you say that something is, say, 10% uh, likely or unlikely or extremely unlikely and the impact is this much, you have to watch your system for quite a long time to even observe an unlikely event to have some level of confirmation about you know, the feedback on your decisions and so forth. Right. So uh, because we have this very slow, inconsistent and ambiguous feedback in risk management, it's very easy for us to fool ourselves that when we adopt a method that seems like it should work, we feel better about it. The only way we can really answer that question is not rely on our personal observations. Those will be insufficient. That's not sufficient data to test risk analysis for rare impactful events. So my own immediate experience is not going to work for that. What I have to do is look at the research on the performance of individual components. And there's lots of research on it. We know the research on how well do simple statistical models compare to unaided intuition of experts in a variety of fields. How well do the qualitative models perform? How well do Monte Carlo's perform even when the inputs for the Monte Carlo are subjective? How well can people be trained to subjectively assess probabilities? All, how much does our uh, decision depend on our willy-nilly risk tolerance that day? And is there a way to quantify that so it's not moving around all the time? Well, we know the answers to these things. We don't have to wing it. So I'm just simply telling people, you know, here's what the research says. You're not going to learn about the performance of your risk assessment method by waiting around for things to happen or not in your environment. You're not, that's not immediate feedback. Yeah, and I, I definitely know that's what happens in business continuity, disaster planning, cybersecurity. Uh, I've been in sessions where people sit around just throwing all that kind of information around. And then some. I swear half the time it feels like they're just throwing a dart against the wall. Okay, there's where we are. And that's right. what we do based on that. And, and it's not like they know nothing. They know something. We're just eliciting the information and using it incorrectly. That's the problem with it. So we can still use their subject matter expert knowledge, but we have to, first off, 
train them how to express that knowledge probabilistically. It doesn't take a lot of training. It's relatively short training. It's a half a day. All right. Uh, it's relatively short training. We can measure how well they subjectively assess odds. We can measurably improve it during the training. And then they just speak that language thereafter. They don't need the high, medium, lows, red, yellow, greens, or any of that stuff anymore, or a two on a scale of one to five. They say there's a 5% chance per year that this event would occur. And if it occurs, my 90% confidence interval for the monetary impact is $1 million to $5 million, or whatever it is. Now, and that can be added, you can add a lot more to that. You can make it much more elaborate, much more granular, but at least now we're speaking the language of probabilities. We're speaking in mathematical terms that we can add more to. Like for example, if we went out into the world and gathered more data to conduct a measurement to reduce our uncertainty about those estimates, we know how to do the math with that. If you if we go out and gather some additional research, maybe somebody else did a big survey on the frequency of certain events, and we want to use that information to update our initial estimate, uh, which still uses our prior probability, our prior state of uncertainty based on our knowledge specific to our individual organization, but now we have some new information from outside the organization. How do we do the math to update that? Well, that's not a new thing. That's Bayesian methods. Okay. We know how to do that. I don't know how to move dots on a risk matrix when you gather more information. It's not a mathematically defined process. We're winging it again. Um, so it is one of the challenges I talked about in the book uh, for risk management is this wide adoption of methods that we know don't add value. And they're still very popular in many fields. And and not just business continuity, but cybersecurity, enterprise risk management, operations risk, um, yeah. a project risk, a large IT project, et cetera. What, and in some areas of finance, even, it comes up, uh, like yeah. in Sarbet, not in Dodd-Frank, for example. I, I've been a part of all those sessions. So, yes, that's true. And they all still use that same old uh, matrix matrices uh, method. Um, on that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking today with Douglas Hubbard, the author of The Failure of Risk Management, and we will be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Tune in for And Security for All, hosted by Kim Hakem. Each week, we look into a different aspect of cybersecurity, which is important to know for anyone who is involved with the Internet daily, which is probably all of us. We take the technical jargon and make it easier to understand while helping you to identify weaknesses and issues in your own cybersecurity and fix them now. And Security for All is broadcast live every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How do you cultivate braver, more daring leaders? And how do you embed the value of courage in your culture? How do you take charge of your life and achieve your goals and bring about positive changes that propel you forward? On The Leader's Edge, join your hosts, Steve and Ernie, as they bring a mix of insights in personal and leadership growth that shapes your culture and the culture around you. Lean in and learn intentionally how to accelerate into your next best life. Tune into The Leader's Edge with Ernalita DeCumos and Steve Steele, Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
when it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Douglas Hubbard, the author of The Failure of Risk Management. Doug, lots of great information in that first segment that I, I mentioned in our break here. I'm going to be attending a risk assessment workshop tomorrow and um going to be interesting, I think. <laughs> um, let's get back to some of the other questions that I had for you. You describe risk management with a long definition and a short definition. Can you talk about those? Yeah, I, I you know, uh, uh, I basically for the long definition, I put together a definition, a comprehensive definition of risk and a comprehensive definition of management. And I said, let's just take these literally and put those two together. And that's what I did. And that's when I came up with the, uh, the identification analysis and prioritization of risk followed by a coordinated and economical application of resources to reduce the risk, et cetera. So that was the long one. Um, the shorter one is just being smart about taking chances. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's ultimately what all that means, being smart about those things, which by the way, introduces the concept that in order to do risk management, we really have to go beyond risk management. It's really decision analysis. And I've written about this oh, before, but risk management, risk management is part of decision analysis. When you make risk return trade-offs, who's computing the return? Uh, risk managers are focusing, focusing primarily on bad things that could happen, mostly. But when you're investing in a, in a big IT project, you've got risk and you've got some benefits or some government policy or whatever it is. So some new R&D product or you know pharmaceutical product, et cetera, there's gonna be risk and there's gonna be benefits. Now the risk return analysis is really just the analysis of the entire decision. It's sort of like, I always thought that having risk management as a separate function in a firm is kind of like having a left footed shoe store just for your left feet. Why would you do that? Why You wouldn't have a shoe store just for your left feet. You have both feet, you know, so you're making, you're making decisions. Risk is one component in decisions along with costs and benefits, you know, things like this. So um, we should look at it from a holistic point of view, but I'm realistic. I understand that a lot of organizations already have the institution. They have the function of risk assessment. So I'm just taking it piecemeal. I'm saying, well, first let's improve that. Let's get away from the methods that we know don't work. And there's plenty of research on that. It's all cited there in the book. Okay. Not my research. It's other people's research. I'm just citing them. And I looked at it from an objective point of view, I should say. I would. I didn't set out to disprove risk matrices. It would have been great if I could find research that said, hey, it's measurably better than your unaided intuition. I would have written that. Um, I wrote what I wrote because the research backed up that particular point. I, I had no skin in the game about... I was out for risk matrices or not. No, that's a conclusion based on analysis and research. So uh, anyway, uh, that's what the long definition was all about, is putting together the definition of risk and the definition of management. And then the short definition was ultimately about being smart about taking chances, which really is kind of leading a blend, you know, uh, bleeding over into decision analysis as a broader concept. 
uh, decision analysis, game theory, portfolio, portfolio optimization problems, things like that. That's the bigger picture part of things. It should all be part of the same solution. Now, some you mentioned project management. <clears throat> and in your book, you talk about um, the four risk management responses, avoid, reduce, transfer, and retain. And I quote, the boundaries around those are a little murky. Now, we've uh, yeah. being in project management for many years, I had those four drilled into me, uh, you know, nonstop. Mm -hmm. So why do you say they're a little murky? Well, uh, first off, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, so if I decide that I'm going to use uh, an external vendor to uh, develop some software for me, there might be two purposes for that. I might be transferring some risk, but I also might have reason to believe that because this is within their wheelhouse, uh, they are, they're better at it than we would be. So it's reducing risk and it's transferring some of that risk. And some of the risk is still being retained, right? So even if it, under the most generous and uh, risk averse kinds of agreements that you might ever be able to get a vendor to be able to sign, you're still retaining risk because you still have a lot of internal resources that you're applying to a given project. And if it doesn't work out, whatever benefits you were hoping to get, you might have to start from scratch or even if you didn't have to pay for the project for the vendor's time, you still spend a lot of time yourself and that whole time competitors were working on their solutions and they get out the door earlier. So there's still risk that you're still retaining. Uh, so specific decisions, uh, it's a risk return trade-off. So we often talk about return on control or return on mitigation kinds of problems. Here's how much this risk reduction is going to cost me. Here's how much that risk reduction is worth. Now, if I'm reducing risk by transferring part of it, well, I'm reducing it to me, right? I'm not necessarily reducing the universal risk. I'm just reducing it to me, which is the part I care about, right? The For my firm, I'm getting someone else to take it. Um, I can retain part of it. That's a risk return trade-off by itself. I reduce it. You know, those are all choices. Uh, I just don't think it's that important to make sharp distinctions. What matters is, I'm going to spend a million dollars. Did I get a million dollars worth of total risk reduction to me? Does that mean you can never really re reduce or remove any risk that no matter what you do, risk is on some level is always going to be there? Well, I mean, right up until we start predicting the future perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't see that happening soon. Uh, so yes, you're going to continue to make decisions under uncertainty. Um, and that uncertainty means that some of the outcomes of decisions that we make, actions that we take or don't take, uh, are negative. They're negative outcomes, things that if only we would have known better, we would have done something differently. Those, that's always going to be the case. So what we can do, though, is be smart about how we're going to analyze those choices. So is, I'm thinking back to my project management days when we had uh, your external vendors, you used a great example. And I remember vice presidents and uh, you know, project sponsors sitting there saying, yeah, we have a vendor, so we don't have any risk. Where does that mindset come from them? Is it a complete misunderstanding of what risk management is? Well, they, they might not be wrong in thinking that they have less risk than if they did it themselves. That's probably, mm -hmm. that could easily be true. 
Um, saying that they have no risk is kind of narrowing the scope of what risk they're looking at. So are they looking at, say, competitor risk? Competitor, there's, how do I ensure against competitors coming out with a solution faster because my vendor didn't work out, even if I don't have to pay the vendor anything? Mm-hmm. I, how did I get out of, out of that? There's, so it's the, if they think they've eliminated any risk, I think the only way to do that is just not be in business. Um, you know, so I, I don't know how you, I just don't see the avoid thing as a well-defined option really coming up. You're reducing risk your, uh, to yourself. Um, you might be reducing risk overall or even holding overall risk for all parties constant and giving it to somebody else, transferring part of it. But even that's a risk return trade-off, right? So when you transfer a risk, for example, by buying insurance, that costs you something. How much risk did you really get for that insurance premium? How much risk reduction did you get for that insurance premium? By the way, um, these are some important concepts I talk about in the book, but if you're risk neutral, that's a well understood concept to a risk neutral person, a 10% chance of winning a million dollars is identical to having $100,000 cash. They would be indifferent between those two. That's a risk neutral person. From a truly risk neutral point of view, you would never buy insurance. It's... Hmm. Because, you know, obviously the insurance company has to make a margin. So from their point of view, the probability weighted average outcomes have in terms of the claims they would have to pay out has to be in their from their point of view, less than your premium. Um, and assuming they that you don't have necessarily more information than your than your insurance company would have, uh, it's a net loss to get insurance every time unless we quantify your risk tolerance because losing 10 million, is more than 10 times as painful as losing 1 million. Uh, and so there's a whole field behind that. It's a utility theory. That's what expected utility theory is based on. Um, and there's an important way to quantify your risk tolerance. So that I knew that was another thing we were going to talk about, but mm-hmm. quantifying your risk tolerance is something that really needs to be done. There's a lot of interesting research on this, but your tolerance for risk is actually something that changes daily subconsciously. You're not even aware that you're Tolerance has changed this day, um, but it could change for all sorts of irrelevant, random external factors that have nothing to do with the decision that you're making. You just feel, and you're not even aware that your risk tolerance has changed. You think it's the same as it was the day before. That's not true. But we can quantify your risk tolerance in a mathematically unambiguous way. This really comes from, I mentioned utility theory, you work out expected utilities and so forth. Again, this is, it sounds like it's just theory. We do it all the time. Practical projects with clients, they use it. It's actually things like this are the basis for how we compute things like reserve risk for insurance companies or uh, reserve risk for banks. Um, uh, nuclear power does things like this. There, none of this had to be invented by us. I like what <clears throat> what you had to say there about risk tolerance because um, with many organizations, they'll do a risk assessment and they'll determine their risk tolerance and it'll stay that way for a year, year and a half until they get around at some point, hopefully to review their past results. Oh, did, did anything change? So how do you go about then is, as you say, your tolerance changes every day and sometimes you don't even know it's changing. How do you go about establishing that when you're trying to uh, develop some sort of a mitigation plan against things when one, you know, the the tolerance level is going all over the place. Well, the 
point is to is to define it quantitatively well enough so it's not changing every day. It's a becomes a clearly defined policy statement that's written. Okay, it's in a calculation. And when we talk about a lot of organizations coming up with a risk appetite statement, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to make a choice like, can I tell from your risk tolerance statement that you prefer a 10% chance of winning $20 million over a 50% chance of winning $5 million? There's not a wrong answer there, by the way, but a mathematically explicit risk tolerance would answer that question. What would you consider a 10% chance of winning $10 million equal to? Most people would, if you had the choice between accepting a million dollars cash or a 10% chance of winning 10 million, you would probably take a million dollars cash. I would think if you're like most people, I would, right? On the other hand, if suppose I reduce the certain monetary equivalent that I have over here, suppose I said it's half a million, what would you rather have, half a million or 10% chance of winning 10 million? Well, if you have a big portfolio and that's one of many, uh, you would take the 10% chance of winning 10 million because you know it kind of averages out. But if it's one of the few big choices you make, and you can always add zeros to those numbers to make it non-trivial for people, right? Um, at some point, there's a just a barely equivalent value for you. Like you might say, I would be indifferent between $350,000 cash or a 10% chance of winning $10 million. That would be an expression of what your risk tolerance actually is. And a mathematically explicit expression of risk tolerance can answer questions like that. In fact, we reverse engineer things like utility functions, which are kind of abstract, but we reverse engineer them by asking people which bets they find acceptable. Hmm. Which bets do they prefer to other bets? We only ask them for three or four such bets, and then we can figure out their function. And then based on that, we can figure out if you are internally consistent I can determine how you should choose among a series of other bets. How does impact come into this? Because there's risk tolerance and organizations and leadership who think about, you know, the avoid, transfer, mitigate, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What about the impact? Does that get calculated in somehow? And if so, how? Well, yeah. Uh, so obviously impact is not a medium or critical or a four on a scale of one to five to us. It's a range. Okay, it's usually a monetized range, even when it includes things like human health and safety or things like electrical reliability and so forth. Uh, we still monetize all the risk. Um, people routinely monetize the value of human life, by the way, that happens quite a lot. And, and lots of every government agency that has some responsibility for, uh, you know, human health and safety uses the VSL, the value of a statistical life in their calculations. So people might be surprised by that. Uh, sometimes I tell clients that, you know, we can monetize things that way. There's some initial resistance. And I always say this, and I have this discussion about including things like the value of human health and safety or in saving endangered species or the intellectual development of children, which by the way, you can have, there's pollutants like methylmercury and pollutant, pollutants from coal burning plants that might actually affect poor communities around the area in terms of the intellectual development of children at a very young age, it's possible. It's not certain, but it's possible. Um, and it's a risk that you want to include. So what's that worth? What's a couple of IQ points worth for a population of young kids? How about five IQ points? And would you rather spend uh, $50 million to fix that or $50 million to reduce the number of accidents on a big interchange? 
And do we necessarily equate uh, people dying uh, at of different ages all the same? Uh, there's methods for dealing with that. And I never tell people that I'm trying to convince them to use a monetary value for uh, human life. I just point out you've always been doing it. <laughs> I just say, no, you've been doing it this whole time. I, you don't have to listen to me arguing for it. I'm just saying, I'm telling you to be consistent about it. You've been doing it every time you've made choices and you've made choices in your personal life about how much risk of death you're willing to accept to save money. You could have spent more money on a car with a higher safety rating. Uh, do you have a Tesla? Me? No, not yet. I, I don't either. Uh, but apparently, for what I know so far, the last time I heard, they had the highest safety rating because they're on this big solid block of batteries, you know, on a big or skateboard kind of thing. So it does really well on head-on collision tests and stuff like this. So why didn't I get one of those? If I really cared about the value of my own life, well, time and money. I, I Charging that thing in, is a lot slower than just filling a tank of gas and it costs more, et cetera. There's trade-offs. You and I could both go out and get a whole series of medical tests right now, even things that aren't covered by our insurance, because there is a chance that you could find some condition that you found just in time to save your life. You don't know that you wouldn't find that. Whatever, however diminishingly small that chance is, that exists right now, unless you've already done all those tests. There's a chance right now that you would find something like that. I didn't do it. You're probably not going to do it this year. Uh, there's only so much money we're willing to spend, uh, time and money we're willing to spend even to reduce our own risk of death. So that information is used in a whole series of, you know, surveys and how people spend their time and money versus, you know, mortal risk reduction kinds of investments that they can make having, you know, uh, having a house uh, closer to where you work so you don't commute as far, which slightly reduces your chance of death, right? Uh, or having a fourth smoke detector in your home. Uh, replacing tires twice as often on your car. Just marginal reduction, chance of death. There's only a point up to which you would do that, um, <laughs> just like everybody else. So, But here's the problem. When we do that inconsistently, we're doing it suboptimally. In other words, unless you're actually putting a value on a human life, you're undervaluing a human life. You're making safety worse unless we're doing the math. That we can show. If you're trying to optimize any portfolio with inconsistent objectives, you're going to suboptimize those objectives. And that includes the value of human life. So if we care about human life, we should monetize it. That seems so opposite of what we hear. It really yeah. does. So, yeah, but, I know. And but it, it makes logical have, sense. It makes sense. And I know that, uh, you know, th that's the thing about facts. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to feel better about them. The nature and the universe doesn't care <laughs> about our feelings <laughs> or anything like that. So uh, facts are facts. The fact is, is that we can show mathematically if you have inconsistent objectives, you're going to suboptimize a portfolio based on those objectives, whatever they are. Um, and uh, we know that people already behave as if they have a limited value for a human life. But they don't really behave as if it's infinite. Interesting. If they did, they'd behave very differently. Yeah. We only have, believe it or not, four minutes left. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final thoughts on uh, risk management and potentially what can risk managers or corporate leaders start doing differently right away? How can they start making a change? Well, here's the first thing I would tell people. 
all of the books that I've written so far all have, as I mentioned, have their own websites. You can go to www.howtomeasureanything.com and you can see the risk management book there. The first file you can see to download is called the one-for-one substitution. So that risk matrix meeting you have coming up, if you had the authority to do so, I don't know if you did or not, but you could just replace the entire risk matrix population meeting with the one-for-one substitution model. It's just as simple. You're still putting a probability and an impact on it, except you're doing it explicitly quantitatively. And then you can actually compute things. It actually includes a Monte Carlo simulation right in the Excel spreadsheet. You can compute things like, here's my loss exceedance curve that shows the probability of losing more than different amounts of money in a given period of time. So it's very useful that way. And it gives you the most rudimentary method, very simple method for computing a return on control. So a risk matrix doesn't do that. And then if you wanted to go even further, well, now you have a good foundation for adding more things. You can say, hey, uh, how are these things correlated? Well, I know how to do that. If you're talking about quantitative methods, I don't know how to correlate dots on a risk matrix, but I know how to correlate those rows on the risk register that the one-for-one substitution is. So it's, there's instructions right there. Make that change right away. The other things you could do is first off, get calibrated. So calibrate your subject matter experts. We know how to train people to sub- to better subjectively assess probabilities. Uh, That's a baseline for a lot of the analysis that we do. And then if we went a little bit further, we could start to adopt some statistical methods that improve further our initial subjective estimates. So we don't have to rely entirely on subjective estimates. In fact, a lot of the risks that you're currently analyzing are risks that have probably been measured. They've been measured before. We don't have to invent anything new there. Uh, You probably have more data than you think. You need less data than you think. You need different data than you think, and it's probably been measured before. I say that in all my books. So that's where to get started. Uh, Just if you've got a a risk matrix meeting later this week, just repurpose it. Just make it a (laughs) one-for-one substitution meeting. Uh, Every dot, I call it a one-for-one substitution because every dot on the risk matrix is a row on this new table I'm giving you. So just download that and do that instead. Well, it's definitely going to be an interesting meeting for me at uh, my risk meeting uh, assessment meeting tomorrow. You know, uh, I'll definitely be thinking things and bringing different uh, ideas forward. You know, um, so thank you very much, Doug. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, you bet. And by the way, that book is full of all the reasons not to use the risk matrix, including lots of citations for other research that other people did, not me. So, uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah, that's one reason why I wanted to talk to you, because as soon as I read the piece about you know, the risk matrices, I had it so ingrained in my head. I went, I've got to talk to Doug about this because it's literally stamped on my head every single day to use this mm-hmm. in our industry. So thank oh, you sure. very much. I really appreciate everything you had to say. Um, we were talking with Doug Hubbard today and his book, The Failure of Risk Management. Check it out. It will make some changes in your organization. I hope. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. And everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.